Psalm 16, keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads. Glorious, great, mighty, heavenly Father, Please be with this service today. Please allow us to understand your words. We are so thankful that we have them, that we can read them, that we can understand them. We are thankful for this church and the members that are here. Be with those who could not be with, with us today. Guide us in our thoughts and actions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. R.A. Torrey, the great biblical scholar of so long ago, once told the story of four individuals that were attempting to scale the Matterhorn. In this group of four individuals were a senior guide, a less senior guide, and two tourists. All were tethered together. If you know anything about the Matterhorn, it seemingly is small compared to the mountains of, say, the Himalayas, yet it is a treacherous mountain nonetheless. If you were to go to Switzerland right now, as a pause before the rest of the story, you will see dotted on the peaks of many of those mountains crosses. And those crosses are there to, as a memorial to those who have died on the peaks that are there. So in this section, as they're trying to get over a particularly treacherous stretch, one of the tourists, one of those that is the unskilled slips and falls. With that, he pulls the second guide over the side with him. In turn, the, third, the second tourist goes over the side too. And now it is the senior guide who is dug into the side of the mountain where they are dangling over the precipice 
there, trying to gain the stability that they need. Ultimately, that senior guide would be able to bury his axe into such a place that he was able to recover all three of the ones who were dangling over the edge, saving them from sure death. And they proceed to go safely to the peak of the mountain. Just a small story. It's probably happened countless of times in the world of mountaineering. But it's a story that will come up again during this psalm. This psalm 16, uh, the title that is in my Bible, I'm in the LSB, uh, and it is particularly useful for today, uh, that this particular translation would say, you will not forsake my soul. Now, the biblical titles that we find within, in, within the scripture have been given there as guides for us and not necessarily part of the original text. Nonetheless, it is telling. The title that I have for this message is Salvation Belongs to the Lord. And taking these sections, uh, that, that the, the sections, the way they're divided out, the way we see them, and to see what David, because this is a psalm of David, uh, what he's going to say to us. When he speaks in verse 1, keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, I have no good without you. David's speaking of truth that he knows. Not only does he know it, but he believes it. Truth that he knows and believes. And in this particular, these particular two verses, he uses three titles for the Lord. Three titles that are used here for the Lord. First and foremost, where it says, O oh God, would be the Hebrew word El. Would be the Hebrew word El. It means mighty one. It means the mighty great God. It would be the God over all is what it means. Uh, succinctly in that all-powerful one is how he starts this out. We see that in the terms of El Shaddai that you'll hear, God Almighty, or El Elyon, uh, God Most High. His first section, that's what he said, the, you, God, the one that is above all, you are the one I take refuge in. Then, as it's translated here in the LSB, correctly, you have said to Yahweh, that is the covenant name of the Lord, the personal name of God that is given to Israel demonstrates that not only he is the Lord of all, but that he is in a personal relationship with his people. It is his revealed name to them. That name which was revealed, what we'll see in Exodus. For example, at Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, at the burning bush, the bush that burned that was never consumed. Contained within the 
uh, within the, the Hebrew term Yahweh is the I am statements. And it says in verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am have sent you. There is none other beside me. I am the only God there is. There is no more to look at. There's no more to see. Uh, Particularly useful for Moses with his father-in-law, who happens to be a pagan, having come out of Egypt, who worships pagan gods and idols. I am. There is none beyond me, above me, besides me. And then the next term that is used is Adonai, which means Lord. Adonai, which means Lord, which means master, which means owner. It gives the idea of both authority and ownership over something. So we see here that these three terms that are used, that he identifies God as the great and mighty God over all things, that he identifies God as the one who is in the covenant relationship with his own people, who is not only uh, has revealed himself, but has revealed himself to the degree to be known who he is. And then he also identifies him as Lord and Master over him. That's how David starts out these first two verses. This is who God is, identifying the only righteous, mighty, holy God who owns all things. The one that not only is so great and so far and so mighty, the one whose robes fill the throne room, whose glory fills the throne room of heaven, who the foundations of all that there is shake when he speaks, that this God is the one who has made himself known to the people that he saves. There is no one like him, or no thing like our God. This is the God who David says here, I take refuge in you. You are with uh, like the song that that uh, Martin Luther takes off, the fortress. I take refuge in you. I seek you out. This is where I find my safety, my, 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 my safety from all those things that are pursuing me, my safety from all those things that would seek to take me away from you, that when he says, oh, my soul, that you are that one that protects all of me, That David is putting his entirety of his trust in God even as a sinful man. He is putting his trust in God to sustain him. To see him through whatever he has or whatever comes to him. It would be that statement that David trusts the Lord with his, the entirety of his being. The entirety of his being. David has looked to the world, as his son will do, Solomon, in much greater measure, has looked to the world and has found what man has to offer and has found it to be wanting, to be unsustaining, to be non-life-giving. He has seen that to put trust into men is to put trust into a faulty system. 
It is to put trust into people that are ever-changing, that break their promises and their covenants. People who are fully changeable, and he is saying that God himself is fully unchangeable. Is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. It is the trust that he has, the refuge that he finds in the God who speaks and stars are formed and mountains are melted. It is the almighty God in whom his promises always come to pass. This is where David finds his refuge in what we would refer to as that strong and mighty fortress, that strong and mighty mountain that is God. You find these mountain references with God too is because they're huge, they're massive, they're unscalable. You have those feelings about God, those images about who God is. Furthermore, David realizes that any good that he has is only found in the Lord. There are no good works outside of God and outside of being found in God. There are no good works done by anyone who is not found in Christ Jesus. I've said it before. You can build all the hospitals in the world, but if you're not found in Christ Jesus, they are not good works. They can save people in this life, but they are not good works. Without Christ Jesus, there is no good to be done. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, tells us that as it is written, there is no one, none that are righteous, not even one. Romans 7, 18. Romans 7, 18. Therefore did that which is good because a cause of death for me. May it never be. Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by working out my death through that which is good so that through the commandment of sin would become utterly sinful. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, having been sold into bondage under sin. Verse 15, for what I am working out, I do not understand, for I am practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now, verse 17, now, so now, no longer am I the one working it out, but the sin which dwells within me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that, it, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the working out of good is not. The only good works that come, as David would say here, only good works that come, come from the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works are not created For us, and then we find Christ Jesus only after being found in Christ are good works performed, and those works which God prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them found in Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. 
through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, saying, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. As David said, I have no good without you. I have no good without you. It is a hard statement for people to hear. That without Christ Jesus, there is no good works that you could possibly do. You're kidding yourself if you think there are. All those works that are done without Christ Jesus are done from a place of pride. I want to be seen by somebody. I want to feel better about myself. I want to alleviate my guilt. And they are all folly and rust and moth will decay them away. When David then continues in verse 3 and verse 4, the delight of the saints, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. These ones who follow the Lord, who live and trust in what God is doing, even if, even if fault, faultly, or with much fault they do that, trusting in God's promises, looking forward to the fruition of his promises. These are the ones in whom David delights. These are the ones he is in unity with. These are the ones who look to what the patriarchs told, what the prophets foresaw, uh, foretold. They are the ones that look to the promises of Genesis 3.15, that God will be making it right, and they trust that it will come to pass. Even if it is not, for David's example, in his lifetime. Trusting that these good things that God has promised will come to pass. These are the ones whose full faith and trust is in the Lord. They delight in God. They delight in God in his commandments. They delight in God in his commandments. They don't see God's commandments as chains that bind them, but in reality his commandments are those things that free them from the bonds of this earth. They find joy in not only knowing God, but knowing about God and knowing these characteristics about God. They persevere through the trials of life with both joy and wonder at the work of a God who saves. They trust in God because it is God that said it. They don't seek to understand and then decide whether or not they're going to trust God's word. They trust it because it is God's word. They seek out righteousness, not self-righteousness, but they seek out righteousness, holy living, to glorify God, even if they stumble along the way. Verse 4 says, the pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. That those that deny who God is, those that seek out the false gods, those that, that are involved in pagan idolatry, those who worship at Molech, 
Those, not only do I not even consider them, I find them blasphemous, I dislike them, I have a hatred towards them, I will not even regard them. I have zero regard, zero regard for the quote-unquote faith of other religions. Zero regard for them. There is no Hindu God, there is no Muslim God, none of those things. It is foolishness and faulty. Zero regard for this. These ones, I love how he says, bartered for another God. Bartered for another God. They've traded away what is good for what is faulty. They've, faded, they've traded away for what is truth for what is false. They've traded away the great God for a God of their own making. David would be one that would look at them and look at the way that they're living and look at the way of what they're worshiping and say, you fool. What will happen tonight when your life is demanded of you? What will happen to you that you've bartered away all that you have to follow something falsely made with the hands of man? Like those ones, like the tourist on that rope, dangling over the precipice, hoping that the guide is dug in at the top of the mountain hoping that he will not fall because life is flashing before his eyes, hoping that that guy was able to plant his ax deeply into solid, a solid foundation so that they will not fall. Verse 5 and 6, this talking about inheritance, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. There is a teaching that sometimes goes out there. You'll, you'll hear it sometimes. Uh, people will say things like this. Well, you know, in the Old Testament, they, they, didn't, they didn't have a lot of belief in the afterlife. They didn't really talk about that much. Well, I would point you to this. Uh, he is talking about something more, which he's going to talk about greater here in just a little bit. But, but David certainly understood that there was more than just this life. That there was something more. Because he trusts in what God, God says. He trusts when, 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 when the patriarchs hear that they are going to their ancestors, that they're not fading away into nothingness, that they weren't just material, that there's something more that is there. He is looking forward to this inheritance that he will receive that is both eternal and, uh, eternal and massive in what its scope is, that it's fully sufficient, not only is it fully sufficient, but has been lavished, will be lavished upon him. If we look to 1 Peter chapter 1, yeah, so David is back here. We, we want to remember when we're talking about this, David's back here on, on pre-cross, looking forward to a cross that's coming, 
looking forward to a Savior that has not yet lived on the earth, right? So he is, he is seeing the shadows of things, trusting in the cross that is coming, the Savior that is coming, the anointed one that will be here. So we are going to First Peter. So the anointed one has come, the anointed one has gone to the cross, as Colossians says, has taken the sin of all those who will be saved, has nailed it to the cross, has risen again and has ascended to the throne. That Jesus, right? That Jesus, that is the Jesus uh, that Peter refers to in uh, Acts chapter 2, right? This Jesus, the one that you crucified, is what he says. That this Jesus was the one that David was looking forward to. Now, when we look at Peter then, talking about inheritance, the inheritance that, that David refers to, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is that thing which David is looking forward to and trusting will come to pass. Trusting about Jesus who is coming, the anointed one, so we have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Unlike any inheritance that anybody's ever received on this earth. Incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. Having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. David says, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. Incorruptible, unfading. This thing that you keep for me, this thing that I trust in you, when you said you will make all things right, that, that, that essentially what we see in the beginning of the book is the Garden of Eden, and then it is defiled by the sin that men bring in. And then at the very end of the book, what we see is a remaking of this garden itself. David trusting that these things will come to pass, knowing that eternity lays before him in a world that is quickly fading. He trusts in the eternality with God who not only saves, but saves completely. David doesn't, and we don't keep that salvation as a card that we stick in our pocket, I hope I don't lose it. Maybe I'll get it laminated so nothing happens to it. Right? God is the one that keeps it, not us. It's a trust in the salvation that lays in heaven, in the new heaven, in the new earth, and yet is fully attainable now. That we have full kingdom living now. 
It is an inheritance that is not something that we look forward to, but something that we can experience now. So then in verse 7 and 8, he says, I will bless the Lord. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The Lord has taught him. He has learned from the Lord's statutes. He has learned from the Lord's commandments. He has understand the character of God by studying him. He has experienced God's correction and his kindness and his blessing throughout his life. He has experienced blessing and unmerited favor from the Lord. Not because of who David is, but because of who God is. When that says then, that he says, I will bless the Lord, how can you possibly bless one that is greater than you? How can you possibly bless one that is greater than you? How can you possibly bless one that owns all things? The cattle of a thousand hills has created everything, including yourself. How can we show unmerited favor to God? Well, you can't. That means that blessing, to bless the Lord, means something somewhat different. The Lord does not depend on our blessings, but it means to give him the greatest honor, the greatest place of honor, the greatest praise in our lives. We praise and we honor him for who he is, what he has done, what he continues to do, and what he will do in the future. Psalm 103 gives us a great guide for this. Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Blessing the Lord is not only telling, repeating back to the Lord what you know about him, but actually believing it. Trusting those characteristics of God. Reading the characteristics, say yes, he is the one who heals, who pardons, who redeems, who gives us loving kindness without, without us doing anything to gain it. Trusting that we will be reborn and renewed in heaven. And not only that, not only is that thing coming, a new heaven and a new earth, but it says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are renewed, can be renewed every day. We also know because of Lamentations, what is it, 3.13, that the Lord's mercies are new every day for us. I believe it because his word says it. 
It then follows that uh, reason for this blessing. Not only has David uh, saying to bless the Lord, but he, not only has he found these things out, not only is he choosing to honor the Lord, but he's stating a fact about God. That the, Lord, that, that the Lord God is David's guide for life. Not only guide for life, but more than a guide. He's more than the guide on the Matterhorn. He's more than just somebody that you follow. He's not one way of living amongst many other competing ways. He's not a God amongst many. His commandments and ways are more than just a suggestion for living. God is life itself. He is the life giver and the life sustainer. Yes, you may uh, drink a protein shake today, eat dinner to sustain your life for today, but I will tell you that God holds every single atom that is in your body in place right now. It is only by his indomitable will that you are held together and that we are held on this planet and that the planets are in the orbit that they're in and the stars sit where they do. It is this full knowledge of God, that the full knowledge of God that David could have, the fullest knowledge that he could possibly have, a human of God and trusting in that God. The Lord is that light upon his path. It's the, the Psalm 23. It's, 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 it's as described in Psalm 23. The shepherd that leads, that guides, that restores, that protects, that blesses, that anoints. In the dark night of the soul that David would have and that we have had at times, the Lord shines that lamp of understanding and trust into his life and will do so in ours too. It is that life that is found in the fullness of that narrow road which is amazing that is found in Matthew. It is David blessing the Lord as most esteemed and most influential and most important. It is looking after the ways of the Lord even if I'm doing so imperfectly, trusting, repenting, turning back to him. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it, for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted, narrow, tiny, that leads to life, and there are few that find it. There are few that find it. As a result of this, not only is the Lord at his right hand, which is at the place of most honor, it is not that the Lord is below him, but David is using a term that would be understood in this time, that to have somebody at your right hand is that, that, that thing that you look to, that advisor, that one that you follow, that one that you trust implicitly. And therefore, nothing can shake him. It says, I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. Now this leads to the last three verses, which are, well, let's see. Verse nine. Therefore, because of this, therefore, 
that conjunction. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. I could stop here and say, does your flesh dwell securely or do you worry for your flesh right now? Does it dwell securely knowing that God is in heaven and has ordained the entirety of your life and that found in Christ Jesus you will be saved? Do you dwell securely in saying that I, that, that I, I pray for this thing, I wish this, you know, I wish this pain in my knee would be gone, but if God, if you choose for me to keep it, I know that is best for me because you have chosen to allow it to remain. Dwelling securely is knowing that I can pray for certain things, and if God does not give it to me or take it away from me, that it is for my best. We were talking in Sunday school today about this, that we know that when you ask of the Lord, when you pray to the Lord, you know, what, there's the passage in, in Matthew is, what father would, would give a snake instead of an egg? Or a scorpion instead of a fish? Well, quite frankly, sometimes when we pray, we're asking for scorpions and snakes. And God is graciously not granting us those things and giving us what we need by his will for our good. So I will, I will not be shaken and look there, my, my flesh dwells securely knowing that God is unchangeable, immutable. It is the same yesterday. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. My flesh will not be shaken by whatever happens because I can look to the Lord because it says up here, he's my refuge. There are none like him. There is no good without you. That he is the one that has this inheritance for me. That he is holding it for me. He has my salvation fully in his hand that, that he graciously doesn't allow me to keep that card because I would surely lose it. My flesh will dwell, will live, more than exist, will live graciously and joyously, securely, knowing these things. Now we get this verse in verse 10. Now all the verses were good up to this, but verse 10 is particularly special. Verse 10 is where we find the second, if not third, prophetic verse in the Psalms up until this point. We find it about talking about the sun. The obvious one is Psalm 2. The shadowed one is Psalm 8. And then we get this clarity in Psalm 16. He says, for you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You, know, you will not leave me to somewhere abandoned, not Abaddon, you won't leave, it won't be there. Uh, I will see the heavenly kingdom. I will be at a place where I can take my crown that I've been granted here on this earth and I will cast it before your feet. In this psalm, as he comes down in this, this is quite a commitment that he is saying here, quite a truth that he's telling. 
For you will not forsake my soul. You will not abandon me in Sheol. He knows this because he now gives a messianic viewpoint from this. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Now, there are some that would believe that this is speaking to David speaking of himself. But I only need to look at the hermeneutic that is found in the New Testament. Both Peter and Paul talk about this particular passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 25 and 28, and then 31 is where Peter brings this passage out in his sermon at Pentecost. This amazing sermon at Pentecost. He also, he also exposits uh, Joel chapter 2, uh, Psalm 132, and Psalm 110 in this, in this his sermonic call to believe in Jesus. But there in Acts chapter 2, verse 25, for David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Man, I just want to go back to that verse now about that not shaking. Notice how he's, he's, he's wrapping that in there, how he's wrapping Psalm 16 in there. This one that is my right hand, I never take my eyes off this one that is here, right? In verse 26, therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not forsake my soul to Hades nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Proclaiming David's, prophecy, uh, proclaiming David's prophetic words here as he works down here into showing them that this is Jesus, this one whom you crucified. The result is verse 37. When they heard this, those who were listening, thousands, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? Repent and each of you be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit for forgiveness of your sins, so forth and so on. And then in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, Paul, in his first missionary journey, he is in Pisidian Antioch, goes into the synagogue, right? There's the idea that visitors, visiting rabbis, would be given a chance to speak, and what does he speak from? He uses this psalm, verse 34, but that he raised him from the, from the dead, raised him from the dead, no longer to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and faithful loving kindness of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not give your holy one over to see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. David in this Psalm 16 says, then you have, will make known to me the path of life. 
not only will make known, but is making known the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. This complete, overwhelming trust in the Lord, a person that is being renewed every day and knowing more and more about the Lord, one that is seeking to give his body over as a holy sacrifice and living in such a way that's pleasing the Lord, even as he does so as a sinner, but trusting that the Lord will not forsake him in Sheol and because his Holy One will not see decay. This same psalm should ring true in our lives. We should find that preservation, refuge, trust in the inheritance that is found in the Lord to not be shaken, to delight in the fellowship with fellow believers found in Christ Jesus. We praise those who praise the Lord and deny those who deny the Lord. Christ is that giver of the eternal and everlasting inheritance, something that we can't uh, imagine. As Ephesians say, this grace that has been lavished upon us over in abundance that we can't even comprehend, that we will spend an eternity trying to comprehend. The machinations behind it, those things into which the angels themselves long to look. Found in him, we should bless and seek to give honor and glory to God in all that we do. Whether we're making a grilled cheese sandwich, going to work, changing the oil, vacuuming the house, mowing the grass. Glorifying God in all that we do. Glorifying God even as some of our members are in a hospital bed as we speak. Knowing this in our heart, uh, our heart is glad and rejoices in the Lord that has taken death out of the equation. Knowing that we are secure and found in him and then that takes us back to the story in the beginning. That one guide who is dug into the side of the mountain with three that are dangling below him or like that first Adam that we had as R.A. Torrey would say, that first Adam that led us into sin and pulled us off towards the abyss. Yet it's the second Adam that is Jesus that is dug into that side of the mountain, that is pulling us up, that pulls us up on that rope and pulls us up and secures us away from that danger, that pulls us up and places us firmly on the solid rock that is him. Whereas the first Adam sets forth a chain of events, it is the second Adam that saves from that chain of events. It is that second Adam in faith in that second Adam who is Christ Jesus who leads us into assured safety and righteousness that is his. That we can have the fullness and joy of life knowing our Savior and knowing that we will see our Savior that we could proclaim, like Paul does, that through Christ there is the forgiveness of sins and that everyone who believes in him is freed from those sins. My hope then is that in nothing less than Jesus Christ in his righteousness.
And I would ask that all, that if you don't know Jesus, that please see me or any one of the numbers afterwards, and I will tell you all about the Savior, the only one that saves. I will tell you that you can only have forgiveness of sins in him, that you can only have salvation in him, that you cannot work for it, but he is the free giver of salvation. It is all of Christ for all of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for your servant David, that these words are recorded by him, that we could learn from them, that scripture is fully sufficient to reprove, rebuke, to instruct, to assure, to show us the true hope that is found in you, Jesus. We ask that you be with us throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And we are going into a time of communion.